I'm going to lay out what I hope to accomplish. So first, I want to talk to you about how I arrived at the seminar. I think it's useful in terms of thinking of process. Um, second, I'd like to give you an overview of what I mean by body, what the body is, and how the body works. After that, I'd like to develop a bit of a toolkit. Uh, I think toolkits are very useful. One of the best things that happened to me in my MFA program was taking the little bits and pieces that I learned, internalizing them, and now I have these voices in my head whenever I write, all of these wonderful mentors and all of these writers who taught me these lessons. And every time I sit down on the page, I'm able to pluck little bits and pieces of the lessons I've learned. So I hope that after all of these talks, you'll be able to do the same for yourselves, okay? Um, I'm going to end after the toolkit with a little discussion of how I see the body being used successfully in literature. Uh, it's going to be a lot of lecture and a little bit of interaction, so let's go. The genesis of this sem seminar is somewhat tripartite. A number of years ago, I saw an advertisement for a very particular writer's workshop in New York. It was a workshop held at a shooting range, a workshop geared toward those writing crime mysteries and thrillers. The logic was clear. How could you write about these topics without a solid understanding of how a gun functions? Um, well, I didn't take the workshop. <laughs> the, the, I, the idea behind it was fascinating to me. Um, they take you to the range, let you load up different kinds of guns, let you handle the different weapons, and then you got to feel the kinetic energy released from firing various types of bullets. It was very practical, I thought, especially for my city-dwelling brethren who'd rarely held a gun, um, and perhaps, honestly, even better for those who knew guns but had internalized the intricacies of how they work. Um, I want to pause there for a moment, and this is something I'm going to come back to again and again during this. Sometimes the things that we are most familiar with, our quotidian lives, our work processes, and yes, our bodies, are the things that we've lost the ability, the ability to elucidate. They seem to us, in fact, second nature, unconscious, or mechanical. I believe that a writer's job, amongst other things, is often to remind us of what is proverbially right under our noses. So by the end of the seminar, I hope that you'll be reminded to consciously think of the physical bodies of your characters as you go about crafting them, that you'll pay special attention to your character's senses, and that even if the physical body of your protagonist don't figure strongly into your prose or into your poetry, that you'll know the state of these bodies, that you'll know instinctively what is not written onto the page, because even that simple knowledge, the knowledge of what is not written, can prove invaluable in how you shape your characters, okay? And I do hope I write from a fiction writer's perspective, but I do think this is equally applicable to poetry and other genres as well, okay? Um, the second thing that I thought of when conceiving this idea was a specific story that deeply affected me and eventually crystallized some of the unspoken notions I had about writing. As many of you have already been doing and some of you will begin doing now with your annotations, I had a visceral reaction to a story, uh, a reaction that made me something, see something new about writing and made me realize what kind of writer I wanted to be. The story was called Bliss by Catherine Mansfield. It's an old one published in 1918. Um, I learned about it after an undergraduate writing instructor told me 
she thought I could relate to this story in particular, and I've since read it dozens of times trying to uncover some of its mystery and why I relate so strongly to it. Um, let me read a short passage from the beginning of that story. This is Bliss by Catherine Mansfield. What can you do if you are 30 and turning the corner of your own street, you are overcome suddenly by a feeling of bliss, absolute bliss, as though you'd suddenly swallowed a bright piece of that late afternoon sun and it burned in your bosom, sending out a little shower of sparks into every particle, into every finger and toe. Oh, there is no way you can express it without being drunk and disorderly. How idiotic civilization is. Why be given a body if you have to keep it shut up in a case like a rare, rare fiddle? Um, the story is told from an extremely close, limited third-person perspective. The main character is overwhelmed throughout the narrative by feelings of seeming joy, ecstasy, and pleasure to the point that her body, as indicated in the story, it's practically bursting. Uh, the hyper-focus on the body in the narrative simultaneously energizes the pacing of the story, and it distracts the reader from the shocking reveal, which is that her husband is having an affair with one of the dinner guests. Um, the story succeeds largely because of Mansfield's constant focus on the body, the way she describes it, places it in movement, and projects the main character's body onto the landscape of the story's home and garden. The body in this story is the plot, the setting, the action, and even the denouement. This story, which will turn 100 years old next year, never left me even as I began to write my own story collection. Her narrative to me was luscious, it was ecstatic. She seemed to push the limits of what writing could do for me. I don't think I'd ever felt that I understood a character or a character's body as much as I did with her protagonist. Um, during the process of preparing for the seminar, I paused to think about how the body was used in my own work. I often describe my stories as containing characters on the cusp of major life decisions. I realize now that I could just as easily say that my stories are stories of the body. I went through the table of contents. There's Through the Still Hours, in which a gay couple celebrates their fourth anniversary while dealing with bed death. Um, the main character watches in agony as the long branches of the willow tree in his backyard caress the grass. In the title story, The Rope Swing, Christopher fears making direct eye contact with his best friend, his could-be lover, as doing so might trigger an avalanche, an involuntary release of the things carefully hidden deep inside of him, inside of his own body. And Polly's girl, an older woman, mourns the loss of her best friend, clinging to his ashes, his, re his reconfigured body, and only finds release when she tosses him, his ashes, into a clump onto the grass. I wanted to title my book Corporeal, but my publisher, probably correctly, said the title wasn't commercial enough. Um, <laughs> uh, for me, then, I keep finding the body at the root of most of my concerns. I find it in love, in lust, in anger, in, in ecstasy. We make decisions with the body in mind. We make decisions from and of the body, even when we don't know that that's what we're doing. And this brings me to the third part of the genesis of the seminar before I get into the rest of this. Um, I'm a very personal writer, even in my fiction, so it'd be hard for me to leave my own self out of this. 
I want to relate to you a particular experience that at first will seem to have little to do with writing, but it has, I think, more to do with empathy, with understanding, which is what I hope most of us are trying to convey in one way or another with our own work. Uh, I grew up in a somewhat tumultuous household. My father was a serial cheater, and my mother was chronically traditional. <laughs> She'd never leave him no matter how many times she caught him, no matter how much damage he inflicted upon her. When I was much younger, not yet in my teens, my mother would spend her Friday nights waiting in her car, us kids in tow, in the back seat on a dark corner near his favorite haunts, the Moose Club, the old Red Man's, all right around the bend in Elkins. Um, we'd wait for him to exit at closing time with the woman of the moment. I could only imagine what my mother had seen more than once, my father's arms wrapped around a strange woman's body, my father's clothes on a pile in this woman's apartment, bodies intertwined in a squeaking bed in ways that a child isn't supposed to imagine. My mother would catch him at the back entrance of the bar on the steps of the woman's apartment, and then an altercation would take place in the street my mother clawing, screaming, and when he'd finally fend her off and he'd escaped into the safety of his rusted pickup truck, they'd rush home and the verbal fighting would continue until he'd be kicked out for the night or they'd taken up separate residence, her on the couch or him in the bed. Um, I watched from the backseat of the car from the keyhole of my bedroom door seeing glimpses of their bodies so close but never really connecting. There were strong, loud words that took the place of fists. I couldn't understand why she stayed with him, why against all common sense, he continued living in our home year after year. Now, I bring this up not to elicit your sympathy, but to talk about a very real bodily experience that I struggled with for years. On some of those nights, the times she'd come home and fight long past midnight with him, my mother would reach her breaking point. She would collapse on the floor. Her breathing became erratic. Uh, her eyes appeared to be fixed on something I couldn't see. For my six-year-old self and then my eight-year-old self and maybe even my 10-year-old self, it seemed to me that my mother was dying. I would spend sometimes more than half an hour crumpled at her side, my hands trying to control her heaving chest, my young child self with my little hands and fingers trying to push her heart and lungs back into her chest. And then, mysteriously, she'd revive. She'd just stand up, walk across the living room floor, pick up the ashtray that she'd thrown at my father's head, and then move on as if nothing had happened. I loved her, but I couldn't understand any of this. What was happening to her, why and how she persisted. She was a fool, I thought. It wasn't until I was older that I found the vocabulary to name what was going on. She'd had a panic attack, multiple panic attacks over the course of my childhood. And when I was 20, in one of my own rare moments of unbelievable stress, I collapsed on my own apartment floor in my bedroom, body gone limp on the ground, head half propped up against the side of the mattress. I thought I too was dying. I was nowhere in time, but yet I realized that my body, my physical self, had inherited just a touch of this familial propensity. Um, I knew then what it had been like for her. I could not only name the condition which was important, but I could also describe it. The world disappeared for me in that moment, or maybe it hadn't disappeared, but my bedroom wall had come into hyper-focus. I could see the details of the cracked paint, 
the mountains and hills of bubbled, cracked drywall, and nothing else. I could see those mountainous yellow walls of my bedroom, and then the blur of my partner's face as he tugged on my shoulders, as he grabbed a paper bag and delicately put it in my hands, and pushed my hands to my mouth as he said, breathe. I remember those words now comingly, seemingly out of the cracks in the wall, uh, the cracks in the paint, and I remember then that I noticed my lungs, how they were punching of their own accord, and the pressure I felt coming from nowhere, it was coming from somewhere inside of me, like I was a balloon being inflated, the pressure inside of me pushing against the skin of my arms. Breathe, the man who would become my husband said, and I tried, and I think to, I said to him, I'm dying though I knew somehow through the embedded experience of my mother that this was incorrect. I had lost control of my body. It was strange. What was happening was happening to me, yet the happening, whatever this reaction was, was emanating from inside of me, of my own body's accord, but not of my voluntary nervous system. This involuntary action had taken over the things that I normally had control over, and it was frightening, but even in that moment, I knew even with just an ounce of belief that this would all pass. And within 20 minutes or so, time, it also seemed to have stopped, seemed to be different. My breathing, my sense of touch, my sense of smell, my vision all returned to me, were mine again. And when it was all over, I didn't dwell on the thing that had put me in such a state, but I sat there after getting up off of the floor and onto my bed, legs crossed, partner in my face holding my hands. I think I said or thought, I can't be sure now, that I knew, I knew what my mother went through. <laughs> it all finally made sense, and somewhere in my budding writer's brain, I understood the power of conveying experience, real lived experience, through words of the physical, through words of the body. While we may never be able to fully define experience through our words, we can approximate, and in that process, we can bridge the gap between the imagined and the real. Last year at AWP, I was on a panel with a lot of brilliant writers, including Laura Long, who's been here, um, and our very own Doug Van Gundy. It was a panel on writing the local, and in talking about the anthology of West Virginia Lit, Eyes Glowing at the Edge of the Woods, some of you guys might know that one, that she edited with Doug, she mentioned the unifying power of writing about place. There was a question asked, a concern about how to write real places with originality. She mentioned that one thing she noticed from collecting and editing the stories, and I'm probably paraphrasing and muddling this, was that in writing the local and writing the very real environment around us, people are shocked out of complacency by reading about the familiar. The landscape that we all know is often taken for granted by us. By writing about that familiar path, by writing that stand of trees, that crumbling building, the reader is shocked out of complacency, is shocked into seeing the world that they know so well but never stop to notice. I'd like to use that idea as a premise for this seminar. As I mentioned before, we often take the things we know the most, the things that are intrinsic to us, like our bodies, for granted. I want you going forward to ask yourselves, am I doing justice to the sensory and bodily experiences of my characters? By focusing more on being uh, aware of these experiences, we can create fiction, poems, and essays that come to life by inviting our readers into real experiences. Okay? So let's get into the practical a little bit. Um, this is gonna seem very basic, but as I just said, we're gonna go over the basics again, okay? 
I'm going to give you a refresher, and after this, we're going to work on the toolkit. So what is the body? This is the body. The body houses all of our sensory organs. Any conscious character in your stories, poems, plays, or essays is going to feel things. They're going to feel things in multiple ways and on multiple fronts. A burn on the skin doesn't just elicit pain. There is a whole slew of other feelings that comes with such an action. There's the sense of smell to contend with, the act of seeing the burn, the burnt skin. There might be the sound of sizzling. There's bodily memory. When was the last time this character was burned? There's the emotional response, emotions guided by what happens to the body. They're all related, and we'd be foolish not to take advantage of these multiple sensory experiences. Traditionally, there are five senses. Those scientists have identified a whole slew of other senses or pseudosenses that are often overlooked. The basic five are, as a reminder, sight, smell, touch, vision, and of course, taste. Our brain controls the way we perceive these. I'm not a neuroscientist, so I'll try to explain this in layman's terms. The brain is constantly processing and filtering stimuli, stimuli that it picks up through our sensory organs and somehow, magically, distills these in a way that we can register. Lesson number one, senses are not turned off, though we clearly have an ability to focus on particular senses, especially when one feeling crowds out another. But remember, while a character might be focused on the pain of the burn, in the background of our mind, and that's many times a very near background, our other senses are still working and still perceiving. In addition to the five main senses, some have pointed out other types of sensing that get less attention. Consider sense of balance, hunger, memory, time, sickness and vigor, desire, and there are many others, okay? So just start thinking, not, when you think of the senses, try not to only think of the obvious ones, but try to think of these other feelings that you have that emanate from your body, because those are made of your body. Those are real things that you're feeling, okay? Um, remember this, everything that a character does, wants, or needs, emanates from the senses contained with the body, the feelings produced by our very own systems, our own hormones, Characters perceive other characters based on cues of body language and speech. To make your characters seem real, you need to craft real bodies in action, and that means real bodies feeling and perceiving real things in multiple ways. This applies even in highly imaginative worlds. Your magically realist characters, your poetic animals, all have bodies with their own special and unique logic. The cardinal in the tree, the tree itself, and even the talking cat that alters the course of your narrative, all have bodies. They all have bodies, needs, and some modicum of sensory experience. Now, one thing we need to be clear about, perception is understood to be subjective. What that means is that no two people feel things in exactly the same way. But there are commonalities, and there is a logic to how we feel these things. Let's start with a simple exercise. I've handed you all out a worksheet, okay? So on that worksheet, turn to exercise one. I'm gonna call this the pinch test. Okay, so everybody close your eyes, take a deep breath, hold out your left arm, put the underside of your arm up facing the ceiling. 
Keep your eyes closed. With your right hand, pinch the skin of your forearm, okay? Pinch it. Now open your eyes, do it one more time, but really pinch it. Make sure you feel it, okay? <laughs> All right. What do you feel? Where does the pain start? Where does it go? Does it emanate outward in all directions? Does the pain remain stationary? Does the pain move inward along your nerves, along your spinal cord to your brain? What happens to the other parts of your body? My abdomen flexes a little in response. My shoulders rise in tense. My breath draws inward. My mouth opens to say, ow. <laughs> Do your eyes remain open or closed? My nose seems to shut down. I've seemingly lost my sense of smell because of this. My eyes squint so my vision falls out a little. The pain makes me remember how clumsy I am, always banging my knees and ankles around my house. I look down instinctively to see if I've bruised because I'm always getting bruises. There's redness on my skin. Am I imagining that or does the pain linger for a minute? Take a second and look at exercise one and jot down some notes, okay? So remember this is objective, but there is some logic to what you're feeling. Pinch yourself again if you need to, okay? <laughs> Take just another minute, okay? Would anyone like to volunteer to read their responses? I'm curious. Oh, come on. Go for it. Uh, so it started at the base of the mound of skin that I pulled up, uh -huh. and then it radiated out from there through my wrist and through my palm into my middle finger. Okay. And it lasted for less than a second, but it hurt really bad. <laughs> uh huh. <laughs> baby and um, <laughs> so my eyes watered and my shoulders sensed and the memory that this brought up was when I pinched this girl in fifth grade 
and I felt like not bad about it at all then, but I feel <laughs> really bad. About it. <laughs> good, good, good. Anyone else? Does that sound about right? Okay. No? Okay. <laughs> You didn't feel much, okay. I didn't feel much. Lasted one second, like you said. Uh, what other senses? I, I, I just touch. <laughs> just touch, okay. And then I guess it just reminded me of a really dark time where I didn't really want to feel anything. Uh, so I locked up my body and just kind of like didn't cry for like five years. So that's what it reminded me of. So Good. Like, Okay. It's kind of a... That shut down, yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. You had your hand up? Did you want to talk about um, I found myself, I was squinting both in the anticipation of doing it and then waiting it out. Mm. Then um, tense all over, and then the skin's pink, like it has a little rash to it. Um, but then it becomes like an itch. Mm. And it reminded me of... I don't know if she ever actually did this, but a grandma pinch that's really hard to get your attention. Mm, mm-hmm. um, and then I wrote, does she leave a mark? Never. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. So a couple things to take from your responses there. Obviously, it's individual to everyone. Everybody has different pain sensitivity. Um, in addition to that, anticipation of pain can change the way we feel it, right? You said you anticipated it or not anticipating it. Um, and definitely pay attention to the memories it recalls, because that's your characters are going to remember these things in these moments, for sure. Okay, um, let's move on. Um, I would like to now move on to the next section. So I want to hammer in your brain that there is a logic to how we experience the senses, and that by using this logic, you invite the reader to see your text legibly. When I say legibly, I mean that the logic of your words, that your world is clear to a reader and understandable on the word and sentence level. If someone stomps on your foot, you will notice the pain in your foot, perhaps quickly followed by the yelp out of your mouth, perhaps followed by your bending over to inspect your foot. It's important to use a logical order of description to guide your readers through the experience of your characters. Otherwise, the scenes become muddled and confusing. Imagine that you are the bodily tour guide, okay? You have to orient your reader to this fantastic landscape in a way that makes sense. Some of this is simple and easy to fix with editing, but it's a good idea to get into the habit of playing out a scene in your mind as if you were the character in your story in order to render the scene logically. Like all writing rules, and as Jesse said, bodily logic can be broken for effect, but you should likely be careful and sparse in breaking this rule. Um, I was proverbially born uh, in a long line of anal retentive line editors. <laughs> um, so apologies to the students in my workshop, but I think that this is going to help you a little bit. As folks once did with me, I want to hammer into your brains that the logic of the line can make or break your story, okay? So we've discussed pain and touch, but there are simple actions that often become muddled in our works that have to do with the body. For this exercise, I'd like you to imagine that I've asked you to describe a person's physical body, all of it. So now stand up, stand up for me, okay? (laughs) 
Turn to a neighbor, okay, any neighbor, and pay special attention to where your vision goes, okay? I don't actually want you to describe this person, but I want you to imagine that you have to, and then track your vision. Where does it go, okay? So I've asked you to describe your neighbor. Where does your vision go? Okay, do you begin with the eyes? Do you begin elsewhere? Where does your vision go? It would be in most cases unusual to begin a description of a person in reverse order, right? From the feet to the head, unless perhaps your character were sitting on the ground, or maybe if your character were a small child, or maybe if your character were unusually short or tall. So I'm not prescribing such an order or description but I'm asking you to consider what makes the most logical sense. You can break any writing rule you like, but again, remember that rules, rule breaking is done for effect. Okay, so turn to a different person one more time and just track where your vision goes, okay? Yeah, it's hard for me to not do well. Yeah, it's too, okay. All right, everybody good? Okay. Just take a second and jot down some notes. Put this in your memory, okay? Jot down a few notes about how your vision moves. Would anyone like to describe what that was like, where your vision went? <laughs> sure, one, two. Yeah, go ahead. Um, so I went to the eyes, but I tend to like to look at a person's eye color as well as their pupils. Ah. And then uh, I shift from their eyes to their eyebrows to see expression. Uh -huh. And then I go from eyebrows to hair to see like how their face is framed. Uh -huh. And then from there to their nose, because I think noses are funny. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh -huh. and then sometimes to the mouth, it's like, if their eyebrows don't have as much expression, I tend to look at the mouth more. Sure. Did you ever get to the rest of the body? No. Okay. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, you had your hand up, and then I'll go to you. Um, so I noticed that in both times, I'm compelled, because we're doing this so deliberately, yeah. you know, right through the eyes, like, I'm looking <laughs> at you, and I need you to see that I'm looking at you, and you're looking at me. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but we're doing this deliberately, but, like, when I'm watching people in Starbucks or not doing that, maybe because you're trying not to be obvious, and I find myself going to people's middles first, mm. and maybe moving up and down, and I almost get to the face last, because I'm taking in the other stuff, not trying to be weird stalker. Yeah. <laughs> Think about your characters. Think about your characters and how they look at people, especially people they know or don't know. That's a good idea. Mm -hmm. um, I guess I'm a little bit weird, because 
I start with the cheekbones in the area directly under the eyes mm. because I noticed that uh, whenever someone is emoting with their eyes, that's where the tension gathers. Mm. Uh, and then I typically follow uh, the lines of the face. Mm. Uh, so, for example, uh, with Judy, I go directly down the face. Um, with you, Julia, I went directly to your ear because your cheekbone kind of guided me that way. <laughs> I kind of follow the contours of the face, whichever way they slope. Right. And then they eventually drop down. But it depend the duration of the time shown on the face depends on the face structure. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I had two different experiences with these lovely gentlemen here. <laughs> <laughs> I did Larry first. And the first thing my eyes go to is his chin. Uh huh. <laughs> The beard, yeah. And then I actually travel up to his glasses and back to his ear to his ponytail. Mm -hmm. I didn't stay on the face very long. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I could work my way down. Interesting. But with Scotty, because he doesn't have that facial hair mm. and he doesn't have the glasses to guide me, my eyes went straight to his shirt. Mm. So I went. I tried to go to the face and couldn't hold my attention. Got it. <laughs> because the shirt is <laughs> Right. Okay. <laughs> That's useful. I mean, all of this is you. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. So, so um, I'm reasonably modest and reasonably repressed as a so Oh, you're fine. <laughs> yeah. But and you're partly brought up. I'm not supposed to be looking at men's crotches. I don't really like men overdoing my cleavage and breasts. I mean, this for me is kind of low. Actually, those are you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's perfect. Okay, so let me talk to you about that, right? So, what we're doing here is becoming more aware, first of all, of how we are, but in we're, uh, the idea is to put this onto your characters, right? So, maybe you're writing a character who's a little repressed. Nice to meet you. Um, <laughs> uh, but maybe you're writing a character who's a little repressed in some ways, and that character would not look at a man in a certain way, would not look at somebody's shoulders. What I'm asking you to do is to do justice to your characters. What is intrinsic to their personalities? What is intrinsic to their being? They're gonna fight against these things, right? When they, when they go in public, when they meet a man in a room, they're going to fight against the urge to do these things. They might also feel conflict about these things, and that's where you can harness some really interesting stuff using the body. Um, yeah, absolutely. No, I, I just, I have very, very different experiences. So I looked first at um, Rachel and then at Aaron, and I, I think it's shocker had to do with gender. Mm. <laughs> uh, but I went to her eyes and then her neck and then her mouth and then down her body. And then when I was looking at Aaron, and I kind of, I wanted to see her. When I was looking at Aaron, I went to his eyes and his smile, and I figured out what his facial expressions were doing. Mm -hmm. Then I looked at his hands, because I wanted to see what they were doing. Mm. So I had totally different experiences based on gender. I mm -hmm. wanted to see her, and I wanted to see how I was supposed to react to him. Yeah. It was very interesting. Yeah. yeah. That is very interesting. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Everyone's funny who said the same thing. We don't usually go for the eyes and things like that. But like, it's funny, because like in, in my neighborhood, like uh, old neighborhood, like we used to look at the Ah, uh, uh -huh. like, uh, check out if you have, like, the newest, latest Jordans. If not, like, you're the still little outcast. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, like, you have to, like, 
it's so like certain things, it's like an inter- interesting cultural thing, like uh, what are you wearing, what's your hairstyle today, like what's mm-hmm. going on up there in your hair, because um, uh, you know, like, because um, such, such a versatile that's always changing. Honestly. Yeah. Well, like most, your body doesn't usually change unless like you go through something drastic, but typically like your clothes are, you usually change every day or you change how you like put it on and sometimes you're raggedy in one day, mm-hmm. next thing you know you're pristine, you know, those are like interesting like details that change about a person. Yeah, absolutely. That that's really keep in mind the cultural, the what your character, who your character is, where your character comes from, what's driving your character, and maybe think of clothes as an extension of the body in some ways too, right? Yeah. I see building on that too. Um, I think growing up, where there's a certain um, vigilance that has to be held to. As for when I was looking at both of them, it was really hard for me because the first thing I look at is movement. Mm. It's how the body moves and where the hands are, but where the power is in the body. Now, some of it may be growing up needing to be conscious of violence, of, yeah. the, of the presence of danger. Um, but some of it I know too is being a sexual assault survivor. I'm very conscious of, of how the, where the power is carried in another person's body. Yeah. And I react even after all these years when I feel perfectly safe. I'm always taking stock of where and how would I be able to protect myself from this person. Yeah. I, I look for where, how they guard their, and I'm not doing it consciously, but this exercise, thank you, has like brought that out even more. Is I look where, how do they guard their body? Are they guarding their body? Where, if I had to protect myself, where would be the weak spots on the body? And and so, so much of what mine is related to is to how somebody moves mm-hmm. and how that movement is connected to physical strength and power. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I recognize that because as, as a gay man growing up in West Virginia, bless this place, um, for years... <laughs> For years, I, I was afraid to look straight men in the eye. I couldn't look men, I would have to avert my gaze whenever I met them, and it took a decade, a decade or more to beat that out of myself, to not assume that every straight man was like out to get me. And a long, for a long time, that was something I dealt with. I know that feeling, too, a lot. Yeah. Yeah. What if you kind of like, more than being refreshed, you kind of feel like the body is disgusting and annoying responsibility? Say that again. Okay, you're... You, you don't eat because you enjoy eating. Yeah. You just do it because you have to. You don't sleep because you like to sleep. You do it because you have to. Okay, so... Yeah, what do you guys think? I'll open that up. Well, it's going to depend on your character. I mean, yeah. I mean, the whole, the whole point of this is so that you portray your character and your scene. You're, you're true to what's going on. I made a note that says that... If you're repressed and you're writing a character that's repressed, then the sensory reactions should reflect that. Yeah. You know, um, so to, to me, that goes back, you know, if you're writing a character that has those qualities, then as you write that character, that character's sensory reactions should reflect that. Sure. Um, I, following up on whatever, I, I, I go first to the eyes and then I look with women. At the shoes. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. That's good. Um, I, I just want to say on top of that also, I have a, if, if we have time, I sort of, the one writing prompt that I have for you guys has to do with characters 
pushing against their own bodily needs, right? So people, I, it's useful to think of when you're writing characters, um, are they obeying their bodies or disobeying their bodies in order to achieve a goal, right? Um, so think about that when you're writing characters sometimes too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you can. If the body is an annoying responsibility, yeah. then you get, the, you, know, you get the absurd extreme where the body metamorphosizes a little bit. Yeah. Or it becomes something other than yeah. what it is. I mean, you can use the projection as a really wonderful skill in writing, projection onto the landscape of mood, of body, of, of transformative insect, um, whatever you need to do. You know what I mean? You can, you can harness these things to make your writing reflect what's intrinsic to the character in some ways. Yeah. Mm -hmm. as, as a divergence, um, I, I was trying to focus on, on the, the faces and the bodies, and uh, it, it doesn't seem to work for me. I, the Walmart phenomenon, <laughs> look at what the people are wearing and how the clothes fall on the body, and then you describe the person from outside in, inward because of the way the clothes fit. Someone is wearing camouflage shorts and, and right. a John Deere hat. That's one person. Uh, somebody has purple hair. Uh, it's another. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I wanna I wanna talk about that a little a, a little bit later, which is our responsibility in writing other people's bodies. We'll talk a little bit about that because there is a there is an ethics um, there should be an ethics code about writing other people's bodies, and there should be um, you do need to be aware of how you're doing it and how you perceive people. We'll talk about it a little bit, but that's a good point. We better move on really quick. Um, so I have. One more interactive exercise before we move on to the next portion. For this one, I need a volunteer to come to the front of the room. Uh, come on up. All right. Okay. Okay. So your responsibility is to observe, and your responsibility is to be my subject. Okay? <laughs> All right. So it's, this is a really simple exercise. So um, I'm going to ask you to describe your reaction to something, and you're going to observe her reacting. Okay, ready? Are you ready? I don't know. Are yeah. you sure? Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, all right. Okay. What happened? What did you feel in that moment? Uh, I felt my forehead buzz, and then my eyes closed, and then I, I shouted, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, uh, and then, like, my heart, like, what? Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah, went upwards. Did yeah. anything else come? Anything? Anything come to your brain? Anything else? Uh, besides the buzzing feeling? Yeah. Just like my tongue swell a little bit. Okay. I don't like that. Don't do that. Okay. I won't do it again. I won't do it again. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah. So. You're fine. Uh, I want to point out that what I did was I obviously made a physical moment, but she also reacted to sound as well. Okay, we haven't talked about sound much, but sound is very powerful too. Um, so based on what you saw her do, did you see any of those things happening to her? You heard the shout, right? But did you hear? Did you feel? Did you hear any of the other things? Did you see any of the other reactions? I see her, eyes. her eyes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Surprisingly still though. Yeah. 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 I work with children. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, no, no, um, 
Noticeable. Yeah. That's interesting. Right. Okay. That's interesting to think about. Right. So it's very hard to see the eyes and much easier to hear the hear the response and I don't like that, don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay, good. You can have a seat, thank you. Um just <laughs> I, I wanted to just, um, jot, you can jot down a few notes about that. It doesn't have to be too long. But I want to get you not only into focusing on your own body, um, but in observing people and seeing what is visible and not visible on someone's body and their reactions. Okay, so think about that stuff. Um, now, let's move on quickly. I would like to start building a toolkit for writing, okay, for writing the body. I want to give you a few of the tips that I've had in my life that I think are useful, um, and then we'll, we'll talk about some of these. A writing professor of mine suggested that scenes are often made stronger by grounding the text in at least three senses, okay? So I'm gonna say my rule of thumb is three senses. It's on the worksheet too, okay? Now, she said this, uh, it's again, it's a, a suggestion. It's not a rule that has to be followed, but in keeping this in my own toolkit, I've been more consciously aware of how I'm crafting my worlds, even if I don't meet this goal. Um, I try to think of the senses that I often neglect in my writing. Vision is usually the easiest to incorporate for me. Uh, smell is such a powerful sense that doesn't always make it into a scene for me. I don't want you writing smell into every single scene you write, <laughs> but harness it for effect from time to time. With practice, you're gonna learn how to vary and balance sensorial writing, okay? Um, in the same vein, remember that senses are temporal, and I'll explain what I mean by that. Once a sensory moment passes, the feeling either dulls or intensifies according to how our memory deals with the moment, okay? So long after something physical happens to you or to someone, they may dwell on that and the memory may shift the way that they felt that thing, okay? So when you're writing about um, senses, remember their temporal aspect, okay? If you're writing in the moment about a sense, it's gonna be different than writing about it after the fact. So think about that a little bit. Um, I would also like you to consider writing your character's sensory perceptions with action. Um, and likewise, coloring your stories, essays, plays, and poems with the senses is not an excuse to overuse adjectives, okay? <laughs> so this is very line-based, this is very, uh, very scene-based, but um, if you craft your pain, your yearning, your hunger, your vision, and your sound with movement, you will pull your readers in to engage with the text. By action, I actually mean verbs, <laughs> which make your text flow with momentum. So if you ground the bodies and senses of your characters with verbs, um, your reader will be pulled in. Overuse of adjectives can slow down text and create an odd distance between the reader and the story. Um, verbs are seamless, adjectives are heavy. That's how I think of it anyways, okay? So I would encourage you to craft senses with action. Um, my next one is to be cognizant, as we've been talking about, of perspective and subjectivity. 
a character in your story may know his or her own body, but will need to conjecture about the bodies of others. In limited third perspectives or first person perspectives, a story is filtered through the point of view of a single character. In more distant perspectives, you may have access to multiple characters' bodily states, but remember that only you, the godlike author, has this access. The characters themselves remain limited by their own perspectives. If you like the collective voice, you might wield bodily experience of a town, an entire family, or whatever collective you're writing about. And the impact, the impact of detailing a bodily experience from a collective point of view can be really profound, okay? So just remember perspective and subjectivity in your stuff. Okay, I'll just put perspective up here. Um, let's move on to the next one. Because sensory experiences are strange and strangely felt, it can often feel like we don't have the vocabulary to describe what's going on with our own, our own bodies or our characters' bodies. Um, harness this ambiguity to your advantage to circle around and approximate feelings when needed. Consider the use of simile and metaphor. That's quite useful when describing bodily experiences. Consider using the landscape to reflect a character's physical body or mood. Um, when the feelings a character experiences seem to conflict, use conflicting description to describe the feeling. Take something like sexual desire and gratification. The threshold between what feels pleasant and what feels painful is often not clear. Um, present the reader with the conflict and the reader will likely understand or begin to understand what the character is going through, okay? So harness that ambiguity. And as we talked about before, characters may push against what is going on in their own bodies. This is a prime opportunity to reveal something important about the character in question. A character that persists against deep internal pain, against a sprained limb, against the weight and pain of pregnancy, is a particular character with a particular motivation. As mentioned before, use the action of the character to show this conflict, and your reader will likely understand what's going on. Um, now that we've talked about a few of these, I want to do one quick writing exercise. This is the last one, exercise four. I'm calling this uh, Field of Lavender, okay? Now, what I want you to do with this, this is an exercise in harnessing the senses with action, not with adjectives, okay? So I want you to write one single paragraph in which you describe a person walking through a field of lavender. You have a maximum of four sentences and you need to engage all five senses, and you get bonus points if you engage one or more of the pseudo senses that we talked about, okay? So just take a couple of minutes and try to write a character, it can be in any perspective you want, walking through a field of lavender, and try to harness as all five senses, okay?
take another minute or two. Okay, um, you can finish that up later if you don't finish now. Again, why I'm having you do this, I, would, I just wanna get you in the habit of writing concise sentences that put the body in action. You're allowed to use adjectives, but try not to overuse them. Harness the senses in as many ways as possible to set a scene and pull people into your story, okay? Um, the toolkit I offered you is just a start. So whenever you start writing about the body, find things that you think are important, add it to your toolkit, keep it in the back of your mind. I wanna talk now about what I think body writing is and where I've seen it in literature and give you a few examples. I'd argue that nearly all of our writing is body writing. If you consider stories and poems of love, of loss, of coming of age, of domestic insanity, and yes, of course, war, all have real bodies attached to the characters in the stories. Real bodies yearning, disappearing, crying, fearing, and praying. So often we think first of the thoughts of the characters, of the dialogue of the actors, of the meditation in the poem on a single object, but all of these, the thoughts, the dialogue, the meditation would carry no meaning if they weren't springing from the body of one of your characters, from the physical voice itself of an embodied narrator. I'm begging you then to keep in the mind, in your mind, your characters um, and their bodies, even when bodies aren't seemingly the focus of your work. I'm gonna offer you three excerpts from stories uh, that many of you may have read some of these. I'm gonna start with Flannery O'Connor is a good man is hard to find. How many of you have read that story? A lot of you, I thought that would be one that was universal. I didn't want to give you too much homework. <laughs> so this one, uh, much has been made of the final scene in the story in which the serial killer, the misfit, shoots the grandmother. Um, often folks discuss the story in relation to redemption and grace and whether the grandmother or the misfit achieves any of those things in the final pivotal moment. I've seen a number of discussions based on the final dialogue, but I think just as important is how O'Connor punctuates the character's speech with poignant bodily actions, okay? So let's look at a short paragraph of the end of the murder, and then I'm gonna walk you through my thought process. I wasn't there, so I can't say he didn't, the misfit said. I wished I had been there, he said, hitting the ground with his fist. It ain't right I wasn't there, because if I had been there, I would have known. Listen, lady, he said in a high voice. If I had been there, I would have known and I wouldn't be like I am now. His voice seemed about to crack and the grandmother's head cleared for an instant. She saw the man's face twisted close to her own as if he were going to cry and she murmured, why, you're one of my babies. You're one of my own children. She reached out and touched him on the shoulder. The misfit sprang back as if a snake had bitten him and shot her three times through the chest. 
Then he put his gun down on the ground and took off his glasses and began to clean them. You guys remember that? Okay. Um, they're having a discussion about Jesus having risen from the dead and the consequences of such an action. Critics and folks analyzing O'Connor's craft focus on her dialogue rightly, on the misfits' musings, and the grandmother's final strange declaration, you're one of my babies, um, but notice the subtle but extraordinarily important use of body here. The pounding of his fist, his high voice, the fact that the grandmother's head clears, a suggestion of one of the pseudosenses that we've discussed, internal body in action, sprung on by the fact that the misfit's voice is on the verge of cracking. There's the suggestion that he might be on the verge of tears. And of course, the unforgettable moment, the story-changing moment, when the grandmother reaches out and touches the misfit, a notorious serial killer, on the shoulder. Words alone couldn't end this story. The characters' bodies, alive on the verge of death, dead, needle their way into a reader's unconscious mind and push the story towards something greater than a mere message, okay? Another well-known story I wanna talk about is uh, The Things They Carried by Tim O'Brien. Have many of you read that one too? Okay, great. Um, it's what's often referred to as a list story. It offers a litany of items that the soldiers carry with them during war. Each item, either physical or metaphorical, is meant to signify some kind of meaning about the person in question. Here's a short passage from the beginning of that story. The things they carried were largely determined by necessity. Among the necessities of near or near necessities were P38 can openers, pocket knives, heat tabs, wristwatches, dog tags, mosquito repellent, chewing gum, candy cigarettes, salt tablets, packets of Kool-Aid, lighters, matches, sewing kits, military payment certificates, sea rations, and two or three canteens of water. Together, these items weighed between 15 and 20 pounds, depending on a man's habits or rate of metabolism. Henry Dobbins, who was a big man, carried extra rations. He was especially fond of canned peaches and heavy syrup over pound cake. Dave Jensen, who practiced field hygiene, carried a toothbrush, dental floss, and several hotel-sized bars of soap he'd stolen on R&R in Sydney, Australia. Ted Lavender, who was scared, carried tranquilizers until he was shot in the head outside of the village of Tonke in mid-April. By necessity and because it was SOP, they all carried steel helmets that weighed five pounds, including the liner and camouflage cover. They carried the standard fatigue jackets and trousers. Very few carried underwear. On their feet, they carried jungle boots, 2.1 pounds, and Dave Jensen carried three pairs of socks and a can of Dr. Scholl's foot powder as a, pre a precaution against trench foot. I'll move on a second. Necessity dictated, okay? So what's notable here is that these objects for me would be meaningless unless attached to and associated with a particular body, a body in movement, a body physically at war, a body yearning for something else, a body under duress, a body pushed beyond its limits. Thus, while this story is not entirely about what happens to the bodies of the characters, the objects are given meaning, real meaning, only because of the state of the bodies in question. Many of the objects have a physical weight which bear down on the soldiers. Many of the objects are meant to ameliorate the physical conditions of being on the march. As O'Brien says, the things they carried were largely determined by necessity. And so he clues us in without using excessive descriptions of the bodies as to what the bodies are actually going through. We get only tiny physical snippets in this case, but the objects themselves paint a picture of the bodies in question. O'Brien, to me, seems a writer who spent a great deal of time considering the bodies of his characters, and while much of this description remains off stage, off the page, we can tell he writes with authority that he knows about the bodies of these people. 
If the body can serve as a plot device and as a tool to increase the meaning of the objects or even the landscapes in our stories, another tool which I would urge you to consider using, um, the body can also serve as inspiration, both as subject and object. I'd be remiss to stand up here and offer you advice on writing bodies if I didn't acknowledge someone who I think has written one of the most important explorations of bodies in American literature this, this century, maybe of all time. Uh, Claudia Rankin's Citizen um, is a book of lyric poetry, a sort of hybrid book of poems and short prose vignettes. In it, she explores everything from microaggressions to overt racism and asks the reader plainly to acknowledge America's obsession, and I mean this in all senses, with black bodies. I'm going to read an excerpt from a section on um, which she discusses Serena Williams. And insane is what you think, one Sunday afternoon, drinking an Ar Arnold Palmer watching the 2009 Women's US Open final, when brought to full attention by the suddenly explosive behavior of Serena Williams. Serena in HD before your eyes becomes overcome by a rage you recognize and have been taught to hold at a distance for your own good. Serena's behavior on this particular Sunday afternoon suggests that all the injustice she has played through all the years of her illustrious career flashes before before her and she decides finally to respond to all of it with a string of invectives. Nothing, not even the repetition of negations, no, 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 she employed in a similar situation years before as a younger player at the 2004 US Open, prepares you for this. Oh my God, she's gone crazy, you say to no one. What does a victorious or defeated black woman's body in a historically white space look like? Serena and her big sister Venus Williams brought to mind Zora Neale Hurston's I feel most colored when I am thrown against a sharp white background. This appropriated line stenciled on canvas by Glenn Ligon, who used plastic letter stencils, smudging oil sticks, and graphite to transform the words into abstractions, seems to be ag copy for some aspect of life for all black bodies. Hurston's statement has been played out on the big screen by Serena and Venus. They win sometimes, they lose sometimes, they've been injured, they've been happy, they've been sad, ignored, boom, booed mightily, see Indian Wells, with both, which both sisters have boycotted since 2001. They've been cheered and through it all and evident to all were those people who are enraged that they are there at all, graphite against a sharp white background. For years, you attribute to Serena Williams a kind of resilience appropriate only for those who exist in celluloid. Neither her father, nor her mother, nor her sister, nor Jehovah, her God, nor Nike camp could shield her ultimately from people who felt her black body didn't belong on their court in their world. From the start, many made it clear Serena would have done better struggling to survive in the two-dimensionality two of a millet painting rather than on their tennis court. Better to put all that strength to work in their fantasy of her working the land rather than be caught up in the turbulence of our ancient dramas like a ship fighting a storm in a Turner seascape. Whew, she's good. Um, <laughs> Rankin uses the much-discussed body of Serena Williams and identifies this body as subject and as object and uses the unique format of her work to begin the process of deconstructing our national infatuation. Through this, this discussion of Williams and through Rankin's explorations of the microaggressions she herself experiences on a daily basis, microaggressions lobbed at her because of the body she inhabits, Rankin achieves both a well-told narrative and an exercise in illumination. Reading her text serves as a reminder of something we should keep in the front of our minds during our own writing endeavors and life in general. 
We need to acknowledge that the stories we tell, that the bodies we write carry weight. The bodies we craft must be wrought carefully, intelligently, and with empathy. This is especially important when we tell the stories of people who don't look like us, who are not of the same gender, who have different creeds, or who are differently abled. This is not an admonishment, and this is not meant to prevent you from writing about the world at large or any of these groups. It's instead simply a reminder that our pens are, in fact, quite powerful. Um, and, there, and if there were an ethics code for writers, it would have something to do with all of this. I once wrote an entire memoir about my relationship with my mother. I thought it was quite good and spent a year of my life doing it. But I realized that I had taken control of her body for my own purposes, that I hadn't done justice to the real complex character that she was. As Joan Didion once wrote about morality, if we have been taught to keep our promises, if in the simplest terms our upbringing is good enough, we stay with the body or we have bad dreams, okay? Um, and so with that said, I'm going to end this great lecture with a benediction of, of sorts. Uh, this next poem is honestly one of my favorite poems of all time. It's a poem, a body poem, that traces the important parts of a woman's life through her breasts. It's a poem by someone that we here all know and love. I keep this poem by my bedside at night, that's true, and it's become a talisman of sorts for me. Um, as, I it, as I read this, I hope you'll consider the power of the body in writing, and I hope you'll try to remember to incorporate some of what I've said in your own work. Uh, if nothing else, remember that the body and all of its senses are powerful tools to wield in writing on the page and off, okay? Um, this is Covering Up by Irene McKinney, my favorite poem. All right. So defiant. Covering Up. When I saw that I would have breasts and that they wanted me to cover them up, I took my shirt off and tied it around my waist and stomped out into the yard. I was so furious that no one stopped me, not my mother, who thought I was acting crazy, not my father, out working in the hayfield, not my brother, who thought it was a game, not my sister, who thought I was acting out, who thought I was crazy. I was crazy. For three days, I stalked around and stomped, refusing to wear a shirt. They all said, cover up, and a cover up made me feel weak. I wasn't weak. I was damned if I'd pretend. I was damned. They were two badges on my chest, each of them saying, this is me. First, the nipples plumped up and turned from pale pink to dusky rose. They were two eyes seeing things my other eyes couldn't see. They, they rounded out and ached. They wondered what was going on, getting ready for the long story, nursing mouths, kisses, suckles. Later, I would stand in the bathroom with my arms raised painfully while my husband wrapped a wet towel tightly around them to bring down the swelling of too much milk. Later, I would stand at the lingerie counter and choose a black lace bra. Later, I would change back to white cotton. Later, I would burn them. But that week, but that week when I was 11, I wanted it to be solved. I wanted it to be over. I took a hoe from the shed and stood bare-breasted outside and beat the hoe to splinters on the trunk of the maple. I knew it wasn't over, but I was exhausted. I would have to enjoy not covering up in secret. That's when I began to speak in my head as the naked one, and the other one went clothed into the world. Thank you.